0: Follow Without Warning Podcast Season 3, Investigation Derailed with Sheila Waisaki on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Without Warning Podcast presents Season 3, Investigation Derailed. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki and examine a major injustice. Warning, the following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised.
1: When I begin an investigation, no matter what type of case it is, there are some common things that I look at. One of those things is what I call red flags. Circumstances or facts that I've got enough experience to know need me to take a closer look. I also want to look at any investigating that has already been done to see if there are any gaps that need to be filled. Along with that, I want to get a good understanding of everyone involved in the investigation to see what their level of training and expertise is. Red is often used as a warning color because it's a color that grabs your attention. In an investigation, red flags jump out and grab your attention because they don't seem to fit the given narrative of the case. For example, if a husband says that his wife, who is known to be afraid of heights, went hiking along the edge of a cliff with him and accidentally fell to her death, that would be a red flag. If he is having an affair, that's another. If he recently took out a life insurance policy on her, that's a third and I'm going to look very hard at his potential involvement in his wife's so-called accident. The deaths of Katie Major, her infant daughter River, and her unborn son Aiden have a lot of red flags. I've asked investigators Mark Gillespie, Mike Kenny, and Jay Marin to talk about these with me.
2: Hi, my name is Mark Gillespie. I am owner of Gillespie Forensics and Investigations in Austin, Texas. I specialize in cold cases, uh, forensic consultations, crime scene reconstruction, criminal defense, and a number of other things. Glad to help you, Sheila.
1: So tell me about the crime scene itself. When you've seen the crime scene photos, what's missing?
2: What's missing from the crime scene? Well, when I first viewed the crime scene photos and there were many of them and they were very graphic unfortunately but the striking piece of information that i felt was totally absent was blood was blood from her horrific wounds
3: my name is jay marin i'm a professional investigator located in miami florida and i come from a background of law enforcement Uh, consisting in uh, state, local, and federal, Uh, going back to certain task force that we did, including ID theft, uh, gangs, street crimes, homicides, violent crimes as far as robberies, uh, aggravated batteries, and all that. Walking up to an investigation like Katie's, first thing we'd obviously do is, you know, secure the scene, look all around, but then the second thing that immediately comes into mind is like, okay, well— Whose jurisdiction is this going to be? Because you have the railroad tracks with usually we deal with railroad police, anything, you know, involving either their tracks and up to a certain amount of feet away from the tracks. It's technically their jurisdiction and their property. They're responsible for maintaining it and using it as well. So my main thing would have been, all right, whose jurisdiction is this? Just by looking and knowing what happened with Katie, uh, my experience from being a law enforcement would have been that would have been the railroad police to handle first of all um should the railroad police have been tied up with a certain thing like that um usually cities wouldn't be the one running it in a certain area it'd be the county so the county would basically come out and handle it which the county is usually the sheriff there in most places um i'm not too sure um, over there in South Carolina, but that's how it would mostly run. Um, usually, municipalities, unless it was, let's say, a hundred feet from the railroad track, that most likely would have been the municipality to handle or the county, right off the bat. But since it was with the railroad, I think railroad would have handled that and would have had to handle from the beginning. Even coming from law enforcement, people fight over jurisdiction. There's been times where there's a car accident and it's in the middle of an intersection. And one part belongs to uh, one county. The other part belongs to another county or city or county. And they try to push it off on everybody. Hey, you know, this is a traffic crash involving four people. Um, it's four feet closer to your intersection than it is in ours. So it's your jurisdiction. So that's one of the things people mostly come up to in certain areas that it's there's a discrepancy of what it is. is jurisdiction. Because at the end of the day, that jurisdiction is the one that needs to handle In this type of accident, it's important that either Berkeley County have somebody that works this kind of accidents involving trains and has this type of experience. Um, But usually most counties or cities don't have that much of that experience. That's why there is the railroad police, and they're the ones that usually handle these accidents. Sometimes there has been accidents with railroad police that a county will assist side by side, depending on what's happening. And I'm sure there's investigators out there knowledgeable enough to help and work this kind of scene. But when you have technically a fatality of three individuals, you would want somebody that's obviously trained to deal with train accidents and um, the impacts that a train can actually give somebody in order to determine the exact cause of death, point of impact, what actually hit them, if it was anything that did hit them or not before they got there.
4: Hi, this is Michael Kenny. When i've reviewed the details regarding Katie Majors, there are many red flags that pop out. One is the fact that Katie's body location doesn't make any sense to me. The fact that she 's allegedly hit by a train, the injury sustained from a train hitting her would not allow for an open casket, nor would it cause the pristine cuts on her body that almost look surgical down in her abdomen.
3: Things I've noticed from the photos of the scene make me think a little bit because I also worked in a city that had railroad tracks running through it, and we did have our share of either suicides or accidents involving railroad tracks and trains. When I saw where her body was placed from the railroad tracks, a direct impact would have destroyed her and sent her in many different ways. And a minimal impact would have still destroyed her and sent her very far away from where she landed. Usually there would be a piece of the body on the track from where the actual impact happened. If she was standing there, once she got hit, maybe one of the parts of the body would have stayed there, like a leg, an arm. But where I saw where she landed, supposedly landed... Um, it's not consistent with the impact of such a high-velocity and heavy-weighted motorized machine.
1: Lauren is Jay's wife and gave up her time on vacation to sit down with me and go over Katie's case. These are her observations.
5: My name is Lauren Platt. I'm a private investigator and I'm also a registered nurse with a bachelor's degree. I have several years of critical care experience along with emergency room medicine and trauma. Um, I've also have been able to see accidents as a result of train impacts, um, whether they have been deceased or surviving those kind of accidents. If I were to come across Katie's scene on the road or in an emergency room setting as a trauma alert, I would not think that her wounds were congruent with a train accident. Some common denominators that are congruent with my experience have been dismemberment, lots of bruising, brain matter, bleeding,
3: What I also noticed was one of the limbs of the baby, even closer to the railroad tracks than she was. And I think if you were to take a measurement, I haven't seen the exact report or what it was, but she's probably no more than 15 feet away from the tracks and the baby's limb was even closer than that. The other thing that I noticed was her separation of the skin, they look like very fine cuts. It's not a rip, it's not a tear, it's not consistent with somebody getting hit and pieces flying everywhere or pieces getting pushed in on bodies and then ripping off. This looks like precise cuts were done from her leg to her stomach to her head.
1: It's always important to review any investigation that has already been done. No need to reinvent the wheel, and you get the benefit of seeing how someone else interpreted the evidence in the case. In this instance, there were two investigations, one when Katie River and Aiden died, and one when the television show 48 Hours shined a light on the case, prompting local authorities to take a second look. Both were short and left a lot to be desired in terms of being thorough.
2: As a police officer, an investigator, crime scene investigator, you know, once you look at looking at the, the crime scene, you're evaluating it, you're, you're doing, you're, you're taking photographs, you're trying to determine what really happened and what the next steps are going to be. When I saw the pictures and what I just described about the lack of, especially from the femoral artery, you know, I I immediately begin to think about crime scene staging. The body was moved after she was killed or in the process of dying and moved to the location where she's at, where she was found along the railroad tracks. You know, that's what I'm telling you is something, you know, I'm, I'm just giving you my opinion based on my observations. I don't think based on viewing the photographs that, she was killed there you know i think and 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 largely the reason i say that is largely because of the absence absence of blood so the things that i would look for you know i would immediately rope off that area continue to document it uh, but i'm also interested in the, the 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 primary crime scene where the where the crime actually took place where she was found is what we call the secondary crime scene So, the primary crime scene is something that we're very interested in, and that could very well be the home. So, I would direct my attention and my resources to a complete and thorough examination of the residents from top to bottom, left to right, on the yard, on the grounds, everywhere, every bit of that property. You know, I would focus also on the bathroom, the bedroom, uh, the carpets, you know, in the garage. I would leave no stone un, unturned, uh, but that would be extremely important to I- I examine that. I would also, if there's no blood found in the house, I would I would consider, you know, doing a presumptive test for the presence of blood by using uh, luminol just to see what turns up. You know, even though you can't see it, it's like I always say, nothing ventured, nothing gained. You know, even if someone tries to clean up or paint over, uh, there's there's a great, Likelihood that that blood or, or, or a, a presumptive blood test will yield good results. And you know, we're looking at a husband and wife, and you know, Katie was pregnant. And although I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, but we do know that uh, domestic violence is highly prevalent amongst couples where the, the, the wife is, is pregnant. Something to
5: take note of is domestic violence has a higher prevalency during um, a woman being pregnant. So that's something that needs to be taken to high consideration.
3: One thing I also want to mention, if I were to get to a scene like that, I'd shut down and hold that scene, but I'd also send officers to the house and shut down the house and hold what you got, not let anybody go in or out, just to see what's really happening.
4: Another red flag would be the fact that the police did not secure the residence at all. They didn't go by, collect carpet samples, do luminol tests, anything to show that most likely this happened around the residence and not at the train location, and this was not further pursued.
3: It's very important to test the carpet to see number one what type of fluid it is. Number two, if it matches the DNA of Katie, or maybe it could have been Rivers, you know, who knows? But then you also be able to determine what kind of amount of blood was there too, depending on how big it was, how much was soaked in, to determine if obviously anything had happened at the house prior to when they actually found her body at the railroad tracks.
1: There are certain investigation must-dos. A set of procedures to follow so basic and universal that they are like what you learn in an investigating 101 class. These are probably things you would do in your own life when you're trying to figure out an answer to a difficult but important question. But were they done in this case?
3: To be honest with you, this type of scene, um, automatically, he becomes your primary suspect. Um, this is not an accident scene where she's driving a car and gets hit by another car. That You don't have to think that way. This is a scene of a, of a mother that's pregnant with another child as well in the middle of nowhere with a car with no keys. So it starts to make you think, all right, well, how did this car get here? Where are the keys? Yes, it's possible if she was hit, the keys would have gone somewhere else. But if she was hit, She'd probably be lying somewhere with some of her body and other parts of her body dismembered in other places. And if she was hit, there'd be some blood. And there's no blood, which is very, very, very weird. No blood coming out the ears. No blood coming out the nose. No blood stains on her. I don't care if you say a monsoon came through overnight. You're still going to have staining on you. And I'm sure that's something that other people, especially forensic experts such as Mark, will be able to, you know, explain better than I can.
2: What's missing from the crime scene? But the striking piece of information that I felt was totally absent was blood. Uh, She had a severe head injury, not involving the school, apparently, but uh, almost like being partially scalped. Uh, and a head wound is, is one that will bleed a tremendous amount of blood. Uh, she had a horrific abdominal wound, which I won't go into the details of that. Um, but it was a wound that should have bled tremendously. And she had a gaping thigh wound, upper thigh wound of her, of her right leg. And the interesting thing about that is that her right, femoral artery and veins were were actually severed uh, as reported in the autopsy report. Now when you have a severed artery, you're going to be shooting blood out everywhere. It is almost going to be like a garden hose because that's what the femoral artery is. And strikingly absent was any blood from that artery on her pants on her shirt on her abdomen and on the ground surrounding her that even though it was possibly raining and sleeting that night which we know that it that it was from inter- intermittently there still would be saturated the, the ground would have been saturated with blood and the blood would have been visible to the eye upon viewing it. so in my opinion that was a huge Huge red flag.
3: Um, Another thing, like I said, interviewing the husband, observing the husband, if there's anything out of place that doesn't look right, how they're responding, how they're looking, if they have any signs of stress or any signs of any type of physical uh, damage, then you know that there'd be something there.
4: And another red flag in this case is the fact that Aaron's interview was conducted after a newspaper article came out with all the details. So that would have been easy for him to read, you know, and go in and regurgitate what he had read. And again, Aaron kept stating that he was too emotional to be interviewed by the police.
3: Another thing that's very strange is he had a hand injury and nobody ever asked from what I know and what's documented. How did he get it? What had happened? How bad is it? What did it look like without it being taped up or wrapped up? To my understanding, he worked for the father, so couldn't have been a work injury because her father would have known of the injury. But it's kind of bizarre why it was never asked, well, what happened to your hand or documented? How did you injure your hand? Or let me see your injury. You got a case like this with a woman laying next to a railroad track, no blood, and you got a guy with an injured hand. It's kind of common sense.
2: My understanding of the interview of Aaron Major uh, by the uh, by the police department there, he provided a a handwritten statement, but it was written by the police detective. It was not crafted by Aaron. And I would, in all my years, I've never written a statement for someone who was sitting in front of me during the interview. In this particular case, we know he had an injured hand. And that was the reason why they weren't going to have him provide a handwritten statement because he was incapacitated. So the police detective wrote the statement to him. I would have preferred. And I think they probably would have gotten a better, better result down the road. But I would have preferred him to make an audio recording. But I, but I, I would not have relied on that audio recording first. I would have conducted a thorough investigative interview, asked the very hard questions, see what he has to say, you know, check his story, and then at the very end, maybe get him to do a a an audio statement. Then I would release them and then I would call him back several days later, give a cushion of time to, to go by and call him back and then readdress these issues and see how much his story has changed. But I, I, I don't think the, the way they handled his interview and statement, in my opinion, in my professional opinion, I think it could have been handled better. Is it contaminated
1: if someone else writes the statement? Is that a true statement or not?
2: Um, absolutely. I think it is because it's not coming from the person directly. The other person, your hand is an extension of your body, which is, an, and, and it's all connected to your brain and your mouth. And so you're writing what you are thinking. If you, have someone else write it. You are. That's that's not an effective, efficient way to do it, because you're going to want to make it perfect. You're going to. There's going to be interruptions, pauses. Wait, wait, wait. Let me get that right. No, what I meant to say. So it's it's just a flawed, flawed process. And 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 to have someone write it because someone is too upset to write it themselves. I find I have a major problem with that. If they're upset, you know what? I'm sorry. I have empathy. But you know what? We've got we've to get to the bottom of this case. Your information is critical. Let's see what, let's get through this. Let's work through this. Let's get it down on paper. And we'll, we'll solve this crime with your help.
3: Why wouldn't you want to call the police to send multiple people out, to put aviation up, to look around and search in these rural areas? Obviously, it's a lot harder. So you would have a helicopter up looking around. Why wouldn't you want to make sure that your kids uh, are okay, especially her? You know, why wouldn't you want to call the police? That just doesn't seem right to me. One thing I also want to mention, if I were to get to a scene like that, I'd shut down and hold that scene. But I'd also send officers to the house and shut down the house and hold what you got not let anybody go in or out just to see what's really happening. Um, Another thing, like I said, interviewing the husband, observing the husband, if there's anything out of place that doesn't look right, um, how they're responding, how they're looking, if they have any signs of stress or any signs of any type of physical uh, damage, then you'd know that there'd be something there.
1: Some of the most important things I look at are inconsistencies. If someone tells you they were at a certain place, on a certain date, at a certain time, then their cell phone records should confirm that. So should the statements of witnesses and the physical evidence. If these things don't line up, then I have to see why there are inconsistencies. Often it means someone is lying. The question I have to answer then is who? I also look at what investigation has been done before I got involved to see if there are any gaps that need to be filled. And is, is it normal not to inform the family, the mom, what's what the results are and if the tests were done?
3: No, it's not normal because technically you're not trying to inform them of anybody else's involvement, like anybody else's personal information anything, you know, violating HIPAA, you have a victim, which the victim is the deceased and all of them, plus the family is the next of kin surviving the victim. So if the investigation is still ongoing, you would be able to contact them and say, hey, listen, we got this from this family. We tested this just so you know, it did or did not come back to your daughter. At least tell them something and keep them informed, especially since it was ruled a suicide. But Just by looking, listening, and reading to what's out there, you can tell this is not a suicide. If I have a victim's mother, father, next of kin, sister, brother, emailing me or calling me, you got to just remember they're experiencing a very tragic moment in their life. Yes, you can be a law enforcement officer, but you got to be human at the same time too. So I would definitely call them back. I would at least keep them updated every so often or every few days. Especially if you get results from a medical examiner that this is what's going on, or you get a lead, this is what's going on. Once you follow up on the lead and it's a dead end, okay, then I would tell them. But if a medical examiner is giving you information or you're getting other details that are pertinent that you think would help them that are not going to hinder your investigation, then of course you're going to tell them. You're going to talk to them. You're going to see how they're doing. You know, you can't just like treat somebody like they don't exist or they're another person in this world. You know, they've experienced something horrible. I'm aware of
2: the interaction the police department has had between or with Vicky and her husband, and I understand that that interaction is fairly non-existent or extremely minimal. Um, what is sad is that this family has has lost a, their family has been wiped out. Their daughter, their granddaughter their grandson yet to be born are now eliminated they're no longer they are traumatized and you have a police department that is not returning phone calls not returning emails has basically cut off all communication that that is unacceptable and that is that violates every moral ethical standard i could even think of um and, and the police department is there to serve and protect us. And I don't care how badly they did an investigation or how badly they feel about how they conducted a poor investigation, in my opinion. It's their responsibility to man up and step forward and be there for the family and answer their questions. You know what? If it were their family, they would they would accept, expect the greatest amount of service, respect, and support from law enforcement. And you know what? They failed miserably in this particular instance.
3: If I get to my scene, document my scene, label everything, give detailed descriptions of everything I found, and I get notification from the coroner that he's labeling this a suicide, I would actually think he's joking with me first. And then I'd want to speak to the medical examiner. This scene is staged 1,000%.
0: If you have any information you want to share on the podcast regarding the deaths of Katie, River, or Aiden, email tips at SheilaWysocki.com or call 1-888-599-0008. Join Patreon and crowdsource justice with private investigator, Sheila Wisaki. If you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal ideation or is actively thinking about taking their life, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Without warning podcast, season three investigation derailed. Executive director, executive producer, and host, Sheila Wisaki, and announcer, Tim Evans. Thank you to Lori Morrison of the podcast, The Unlovely Truth. Thank you to Danielle Birch, Chelsea Sarkowskis, and private investigator Jenny Moore for their boots-to-the-ground, passionate, laser-focused research.